0: Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Doriani, who serves at Covenant Theological Seminary as Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology and Vice President at Large. He previously served as Senior Pastor of Central Presbyterian Church in Clayton, Missouri. Dr. Doriani is also a Council Member of the Gospel Coalition and the author of several books, including his latest, Work, Its Purpose, Dignity, and Transformation. Dr. Doriani, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Nice to be with you, Reagan. Thanks for your work on uh, productivity, which uh, a lot of people appreciate.
0: Well, thank you. Well, thank you for your work in this book, Work. I really uh, enjoyed it, and I was excited um, that we were able to get connected through a mutual friend and uh, that you were willing to join me on here because obviously when we talk about productivity, the main uh, place uh, in which we, we need to be productive and which really the main place that the majority of our life goes into is our work. So it's critical to understand that um, through a biblical lens. So I want to ask you some questions about your book, um, but I also want to ask you some questions about how you work. And But let me start by asking you a, a little bit about yourself. So you've been at Covenant for a long time. When did you start there?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm an ABA kind of guy. I was at Covenant from uh, 91 to the present, but I was away for 11 years. Um, essentially, there was there's a large church in St. Louis that had, um, the best way to say it, is a series of crises that um, it, it didn't cause, co- I don't know, it's the kind of crises that could have caused the church to collapse, and it didn't. And uh, in these crises I kept uh, coming over to help them and a couple times they said well why don't you come be our pastor and eventually I said yes so I was at covenant um, from 91 to 2003 and then I was at central press for almost 11 years and then I've been back at, at covenant for five years or so um, and most of that time as a senior pastor I was still teaching a course or once in a while two courses a year at covenant because the church is about seven miles from Covenant Seminary, so I've had a long history at Covenant, but I haven't been there full time the entire time.
0: Gotcha. And are you teaching right now? What what courses are you teaching? I teach
1: almost a full load um, as vice president. of a few. Uh, I have some outside duties, but I teach ethics and I teach uh, Reformation to modern church history. And um, every year I teach something in New Testament, which is kind of my first love, um, either Greek exegesis or a course on the Gospels. And because I was a pastor, I also teach in our Doctor of Ministry program, uh, usually something about theology and exposition and sermons and things of that nature that are great fun. And I usually teach an elective on something like the Book of Romans or maybe the Gospel of Matthew.
0: And what are some of your duties as vice president at large?
1: Uh, Vice president at large, essentially, I um, speak all over the place uh, for the seminary. I probably take, I don't know, 15 or 16 major trips a year for conferences um, and probably, uh, you know, give close to 100 talks a year one way or another on behalf of the seminary. Um, And I also have a, a center, I should say, I have a center for faith and work that has uh, that started a little bit before my book came out, uh, and it focuses on uh, training entrepreneurs, especially and leaders, business leaders, to uh, bring their faith to bear on the structure of their workplace and bring uh, mercy and justice and love and and productivity, uh, godly productivity to the workplace.
0: Oh, that's really cool. I'll have to a uh, link to that uh, in the show notes. I wasn't aware of that.
1: Yeah, we, we're kind of um below the radar because we're um we don't want to publicize ourselves until uh we're done with alpha beta and gamma testing which which should be done in about uh 3 months. We're doing uh a series of uh of groups with our uh with our cohorts of leaders uh, starting in a couple weeks and we'll take it from there. We'll get we'll go more public in a, about 3
0: months. That sounds great. I know that'll be helpful for a lot of people. Um, let me ask you a few questions uh, about the book, Work. Um, sure. like, like I said, I really was helped by it. Um, I think that work, particularly vocation, there's been a number of books, a small number of books in the past several years, but I think there's a lot of um, confusion still especially right. with, when it comes to how you approach a, you know, a job that's not in the ministry space. I, I yes. get questions about it all the time. Right. And so I really appreciated you talking through it. And even a lot of it's summed up in the subtitle. It's purpose, it's dignity, it's transformation. Um, so I appreciated it. But what I'm wondering is, maybe in your own words, what, what is the book about and what made you want to write it?
1: Uh, Yeah, so the book actually has three parts. Uh, The first part is sort of a theology of work and an ideology of work. Uh, Maybe the most, uh, I don't know, original or unusual chapter is one that surveys uh, the nine dominant views of work throughout the years. So that's part one. Part two essentially addresses uh, the most common questions people ask, and that very much comes out of my pastoral experience and speaking at conferences for 20 years or more on this subject. and And that includes things like, you know, how can I find my calling? How can I be faithful when I have doubts about my job, which an enormous number of people do. Maybe almost everybody has doubts, including pastors, by the way. At times, uh, how can I be faithful in difficult situations when maybe my boss is asking or pressuring or maybe even forcing me to do things that aren't entirely honest or to you know promote products? in a manner that's uh, either deceitful or, or products that are destructive. So how do you negotiate your way through that? Uh, so those are some of the issues that come up over and over again. And of course, today you have to address the matter of, of finding rest, which is a problem not for the underemployed, which are unfortunately numerous, or the people who have two or three jobs. Uh, sometimes they're only able to work 20, 30 hours a week, although they'd like to work more. Uh, but then other people seem to be forced into circumstances where they work very long hours and can never really take a day off because of connectivity. You know, doctors and and police officers are an obvious case, but anybody who runs their own business is liable to be pressured hard to work seven days a week, uh, seemingly forever. And then the third part is, is the one that you might say I, I'm most dedicated to, and that is how do you take people who are already in positions of leadership? Um, I use four P's. So the first one, you have to have a principal. Uh, that's one of the P's. But you have to have a position. How do you take people with a position of leadership, whether that's formal or informal, uh, which would include people who run their own business or people who run a division or a department. Uh, but sometimes it's people um, who aren't formally titled, but everybody goes to them. So how do you how do you use your position as a leader apply your principles, persevere in that, have enough passion, that's the other P, to, uh, to dig in and not quit at uh, projects that reform the workplace. So an enormous number of people who work have misgivings about the exact form of their work, um, and they wonder how they can do better, how they can bring the gospel to bear, not just in terms of evangelism, but but practicing love your neighbor as yourself in the workplace on a consistent basis. So the third part of the book is, is uh, about Reformation or transformation, and that's the discipleship ministry that we have uh, in our Center for Faith and Work in St. Louis.
0: And throughout, I think it was in the the preface to the book, you noted that behind kind of all of the principles and the things you cover. Uh, you wrote you talked about the character of God you said right. the character of God shapes the character of our work right why why is that truth so important to how believers understand their work
1: yeah thanks for uh, picking up on that so you know the basic starting point is that in a lot of um, ideologies there either is no God and so work is whatever we want to make it or in older ideologies um, the gods don't work and you know the ideal say for Greek and Roman societies was was to find leisure. And their gods were gods of leisure. They, you know, lazed around um, Mount Olympus and uh, dallied with men and and, uh, wine, whenever they felt like it. So, you know, your vision of God affects your vision of work. And what you find, of course, in the Bible is that uh, God the Father, the triune God, is first revealed in, in Scripture, works. I mean, He created all things. He gets a lot of titles in the Bible, like, you know, he's a potter where the clay, he's a shepherd, he is a king, which of course is a job in those days, uh, he goes, he's a warrior, and there are others, so God is a worker, and he makes us in his image, and one of the first things he tells Adam and Eve to do is to work, uh, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to care for it, um, and then of course as Jesus comes, he's a worker, first of all with his hands, as a carpenter. Um, And I I like to point out, not just carpenter, we say carpenter, but the Greek word actually means somebody who worked with their hands, with materials, and Jesus almost certainly would have also worked with metal and stone in his projects. And, of course, then Jesus worked very hard as our Lord and Savior, as prophet, priest, king, healer, uh, teacher, counselor, friend. So God works, and, and that means that work is not something we need to get through or endure in order to find our uh, rest. Uh, the goal of a Christian is not to retire as early as possible, but to work as well as possible uh, throughout life, including when you're 75 or 80 years old. You might not work full-time for pay, but you're still, you should still be working.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I that's one thing I hear a lot from people is retired um, folks will write to me and they'll ask basically about you know I write about Christian productivity and they say well what what am I supposed to be I want to be doing something but what am I supposed to be doing my my skills have largely diminished there's not a demand for what I I was doing what do you what would you say to someone who is retired from work but that they want to still please the Lord with their life they want to do something that it, you know, it's an outgrowth of loving their neighbor, what do you tell people like that?
1: Well, you know, let me let me do it. Um, so I'm I'm pretty active in sports at a personal level, and I've known a number of uh, professional athletes, and you know, their quote-unquote productive time of life is you know usually over around the age of 35 or so. Even if they're you know great athletes, so they might make it to 38 or 39, and so then they have a second life. And the beauty, of course, is they can be coaches. Um, they may not need the money, um, but they can be coaches for years. They don't have to get paid. They can be at a high school or a college. Um, they can do all kinds of wellness programs or they can do something totally different and start another, start a business, which they commonly do. So they have an unusual, um, earliness to that, to that need. But people who, who have to, um, retire quote unquote early, give us a lens that, Anybody can find an ongoing life for their skills. Or again, the person who, you know, he makes all the money they need by the age of 50 and they really don't like what they do all that much, they retire, but what can they do? Well, they can work in their church, of course. They can take care of their grandchildren, of course. There's all kinds of ways you can volunteer if you're, uh, you know, if you're, let's say, a finance person and you uh, retire at 55. There's a lot of people that need financial guidance in the church, or retired people who need to make sure they uh, take care of their money well, and so on. So There's, there's lots and lots to do. Uh, one of one of the people I look to in my church is uh, 78 years old. He retired fully from his work around the age of 72, and he's just as busy as can be in our church, and does all kinds of things, and uses his um, business skills to help people assess their ministry projects, above all, in our church, and does a fantastic job at that.
0: That's really helpful. Um, you, you also make the distinction about um, work and uh, good work, and I, I, this is one of the things I really liked about the book as well, is you were pretty brutally honest that not, not all work is really even worth doing. So, what did you mean by that? What makes work good?
1: Yeah, so let me just back up and say that um, a lot of books on work are um, work are, are working hard, if I can say it that way, are endeavoring faithfully to break down the sacred secular split and to tell people who are, you know, driving a truck or building furniture or um, marketing widgets. That their work matters, and so there's just sort of a, a group of books that spend a lot of time saying your work is important, your work matters. Um, don't think to yourself, "I'm not ordained, um, I'm not a missionary, therefore my work is meaningless." And, and those books press so hard on that point <clears throat> that they neglect uh, the fact that a lot of people have a sense that what they do doesn't matter, and, and essentially they're right. Uh, there are there are jobs that don't matter, and um, I, you know, I remember going with one of my kids to a baseball game uh, some years ago. She was five years old, and there's the there's the cotton candy man, and you know he's he's selling towers of um, fluff that are attractive and bad for you, and they're meant to attract you know three four five six seven year olds. And, of course, it causes conflict between parents who want their kids to eat well and the child. And, you know, it's just not productive. I'm not against people selling things at ball games, but, I mean, really, do you have to sell this? Do you have to promote something that's worthless and causes family conflict? <laughs> so, um, you know, there are a lot of things like that, like promoting lottery tickets, which prey on the poor and the ignorant and uh you know huge number of poor people played a lottery and there. it's very destructive financially and people who market cheap beer which is uh sold to get people drunk and expensively and and you have to you have to respect people when they come and say to you i think my work is worthless i think my, my work is meaningless and uh say okay how can you get out of there as fast as possible
0: so you would counsel people who are in jobs that are genuinely um, meaningless if they're able to, to try to find something else to do with their lives. I
1: I would tell them to find something else as fast as they possibly can. If it's, if it's immoral, you you need to leave. You must leave. If it's, uh, pointless or fruitless, then you should leave as soon as you can. That, you know, gets tricky. So, I mean, for example, uh, potato chips are, uh, you know, they're not evil exactly, but they're certainly not good for you in large quantities. And so you may say, well, I I make or sell or market or package potato chips. Do I need to get out of that? It's a borderline case. If you're maybe driving a truck, and this is based on an actual conversation I had with somebody, who, uh, you know, they deliver potato chips and crackers and bread and, uh, you know, good bread. And so you say, well, I mean, I'm not going to tell you to quit delivering things made out of flour because a lot of them are good. And nobody does things, nobody has the privilege of only doing things they believe in deeply. So, but on the other hand, somebody may say, I just can't imagine myself spending my whole life marketing potato chips, to which I say, well, if you can't offer it to the Lord, then don't do something else, market something else. If you're good at marketing, market something you believe in
0: yeah I think one of the things that was very helpful for me down that same track is the idea of your your work is it's not just it is you please God in the way in which you do your work the manner in which you do it, but also your work is a um the the main way in which you love your neighbor and fulfill the the second greatest commandment and I think that maybe sometimes Christians they look at that first one. And they say all that matters is that the way in which I do my, it doesn't matter what I do. It's the way in which I do it, as long as it's pleasing to God. I'm working hard. I'm being a good witness in my work, and that's kind of it. The work itself is incidental, you know, or really? even um, you know, really the only thing to re- way to redeem your secular work is by seeing it as a mission field. Everything else is incidental,
1: right. Exactly. Well, one way to say it is people focus too much on the subjective element of work and forget the objective element. So the subjective is, you know, I get up in the morning, I pray, I say, Lord, help me be your servant today. Um, help me, you know, be kind and be ready to, you know, share the gospel or say a true word or, or um, to work with a smile to make my workplace a better, um, a better environment for everybody. Great. Those are all wonderful. Wonderful goals, period. But we should also create that which is objectively valuable. So, if you're smiling and creating a warm atmosphere uh, while uh, marketing opioids, um, you really need to consider the objective external world consequences of your endeavors.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think that you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but you know the the notion that some jobs are on the objective side, more important than others, specifically leadership positions. So you, you can in any job, um, you know, please the Lord in, in, on that subjective side and try to be a, a servant to him as long as it's not, you know, overtly sinful. But right. it's true that just in the, the net benefit to others, leadership positions are more important objectively. Um, that I think that, I think that people would hesitate to agree with that. Could you, could you suss that out yeah. a little bit more? Yeah, yeah,
1: sure. I, I, that's the number one point of the book that uh, people object over. So what I want to say is uh, in one sense, every job is equal. And maybe the most important sense, all jobs are equal in that. Um, every honest job, not again, if you're you know, organizing drug, illicit drug sales or organizing uh, extortion rackets of some kind, but uh, All honest work, let's say, a truck driver uh, or someone who mops floors, cleans floors at a restaurant. Uh, So all work has an equal capacity to please God. All work can be offered to God. All work can uh, be in favor. Those are all true statements. Um, But some work has more impact and has more influence. So the easiest way to say it is, imagine... um, you know, Amazon is led by Jeff Bezos and he's the head. And then we have a guy, or we can make it a woman, uh, we'll, we'll call it uh, George. George is hired to uh, mow the grass outside of one of the buildings that Amazon has and clear the snow. Uh, Jeff Bezos and George have an equal capacity to please God, they have an equal capacity to gain his favor, they have an equal capacity to. Um, to offer their work with absolute sincerity to the Lord and have the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. You might even say that George has a better chance at pleasing God because he's more likely to be humble and open to correction and to want to get along. And Bezos, maybe, I don't know him, of course, uh, is egotistical and his power has gone to his head and and, uh, he doesn't seem to be a Christian and so forth. So, in one way, George is more capable of pleasing God than Jeff Bezos. Uh, But um, the head of a corporation has vastly more capacity to make work better for a lot of people. Uh, The man who mops the floors or shovels snow is definitely doing important work, but it's not structurally transformative. And if the workplace is bad, uh, they're, they're... great limits on what George can do to make it a better place, other than, you know, smile and be pleasant, do your work well, and create an atmosphere that's constructive. Uh, but the leader, the leader can change everything. Um, now, this doesn't mean they always do, but leaders strive to uh, create an atmosphere in which people are treated with dignity, uh, they're paid justly, and this is, you know, this is who I work with to a large extent in my uh, cohorts, is with leaders who want to figure out how to use their positions to bring more justice and mercy and kindness um, and you know better pay and, and uh, care for the environment uh, in and through all the work that they do. So they're strategic. It's the difference between, uh, in the book I talk about surgeons who do surgery really well and surgeons who are innovative and can train other surgeons maybe hundreds or thousands of surgeons, how to perform some new surgery that helps a lot of people. So obviously, the one they are, they are all the surgeons please the Lord, and they all do good work. But the one that has discovered a new way to do surgery uh, has more strategic impact.
0: And what you're really talking, you're talking about stewardship, right? I mean, it's the parable, the talents applied uh, more broadly that some people are entrusted with more. uh, (laughs) The Lord has seen fit, right?
1: That's exactly right. Exactly.
0: I think that's really helpful. And I I appreciate that you just came out so boldly and and said it because I don't think it's that helpful for us to um, kind of play make-believe about those things it's just it's not helpful because it doesn't it doesn't help the person who's put into that position to see just how great their responsibility is just how uh they have been entrusted with something uh, by the lord that is much um the consequences of them doing a poor job at it are much further reaching than the consequences of in your analogy of george yes right
1: yeah, another, another way to put it is, so, you know, I'm mostly an academic, but I was a pastor for, I was actually a, a large church pastor, and then I was also a small church pastor right after seminary, and one of the things that I learned was if somebody comes up to you and says, my marriage is horrible, you know, um, don't tell them, no, your marriage is not horrible, it's fine. Uh, tell them, uh, I'm listening, you know, what makes you think your marriage is horrible? How can we make it better? And and that principle of simply listening to people is at play here. A lot of people say, "I think my work is meaningless," and some of them are wrong. They can't see the meaning of their work. So a truck driver is a really good example, or somebody who runs boats or barges is a good example. They say, "Well, I just move grain around. I just move bread around or potatoes." Well, you're feeding people, and so. Sometimes you say, no, no, your work is far more meaningful than you realize. Uh, you're not watching people eat the bread or the or the grain that you're moving, but you are bringing bread to people and grain to people and vegetables to people. But other times people say, I think my work is meaningless. And as you listen to them, you can only conclude that they're right. It is meaningless or close to it.
0: Yeah, and it's hard in the day in which we live. I think you touched on this in the book with, with specialization, where, you know, the, with the more efficiencies that that jobs, like being a truck driver, you're just kind of, you're one piece in this big, huge system. And so you don't, you rarely get to see the fruits of your labor versus, you know, in times past, maybe you were a, a baker or something. You got to prepare the bread and make it and actually see um, people benefit from what you're doing. And so it, it, there's a, a bit of faith involved with believing that the Lord is using what you're doing um, to benefit others, even though you can't see the result.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I think most people are in that spot. That's why you have a lot of literature that says your work matters. Um, But there are jobs and there are books written about this. Um, You know, there's one, one uh, series of surveys found that uh, close to a third, or maybe more than a third, depending on which survey you're looking at, of all professionals, think that their work is uh, is of almost no value, and, and so you have people, for example, corporate lawyers. And if, if they're being honest, they'll sometimes say, "Yeah, what we do is fight other corporate lawyers. We don't really produce anything. We just fight each other and hold each other neutral." I uh, so there's a series of, of interviews about that in a book uh, whose title has um, a curse word in it, so I can't use it on radio on your show, but um, the, uh, and then there are other people who do things like um, high-end um, buildings who just wait for the air conditioning to break, and they might, might go weeks without actually doing anything. But they want to have somebody there 24 hours a day in case the air conditioning breaks. So you know they read books or play Sudoku or something like that. And uh, some of them go crazy
0: and have to do something else. Turning the page here, let me ask you just a few questions about your own work. You've talked about, you know, you've kind of kind of gone back and forth from being a pastor to academic. Well, you've always been in academia, but, um, you know, where you're where you've had to be in that role of pastor. Um, I, I find that interesting. You know, I, I uh, worked at a seminary for several years and I went to seminary and I think it's interesting um, in some sense, you know, working in academia and being a pastor—they're similar in that you're teaching the Bible, right. but they're also very different um, because you're further upstream, maybe at the seminary, by by teaching others to teach the Bible. Um, how, in terms of vocation, do you do you consider yourself, you know, an academic, a teacher, or? how do you think through those things? You know, like, I guess a better way to ask it is why aren't you a pastor right now? Why are you working at a seminary? Yeah,
1: well, uh, that's an interesting question. So, um, there are a lot of people in this world, and I'm one of this large group, that don't fit very neatly in any uh, category. Uh, That is to say, they kind of go back and forth between a couple things, uh, because it's sort of in them to do that. So, you know, an entrepreneur is probably going to keep going at what they're good at. Somebody who runs restaurants, or um, oh, I don't know, does uh, real estate development, uh, or a good trial lawyer—they'll probably stay at that for a long time. But there's a variety of people that seem to have a great desire to change jobs because they don't perfectly fit in either world, and that. I'm probably that way with regard to academics and pastoral work. So, when I was a pastor, I was always teaching, even the first time I was a pastor in my 20s, I was teaching, you know, Bible intro and and a little bit of introduction to Greek at a local community college, because I just can't stop teaching. Um, But it's also true that as a professor, I've always been active in a church as well, so when I was a college professor, I was a um, you know, clerk of session and I preached at night at my local church. And now I'm a theologian in residence at my local church and I've had multiple stints as a as an interim preacher in churches, probably seven, eight, nine times. I've you know preached for you know, three months or two years or whatever at a church. Uh, so just in me. I love both being a pastor and I love being a professor, and and that's not really all that usual. But since uh, I don't know Reagan, you're uh, maybe you you sounds like you've changed a little <laughs> bit, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if you change again someday. Uh, and I think the, the world needs people that move back and forth between one, uh, you know, use their skills in different ways at different times. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Uh, There's a book called Range, which I've enjoyed a lot, by a guy named David Epstein, who says that um, a lot of people develop themselves the best and offer the most to the world. That's not quite the way the book says it, but that's what I would say. By having different jobs and picking up skills in different places. So, you know, as a professor, I think I'm a better professor because I've been a pastor. Um, Obviously, who do you want training your pilots how to fly a plane? Well. Probably somebody who's flown a plane, right? Right. And who do you want training your surgeons how to operate? Well, probably somebody who's been a surgeon. So who do you want training your pastors? Somebody who's been a pastor would be a a logical answer. So um, I think it's fine to move around a bit for for a lot of people, and not mandatory, of course. And I'm I'm just one of those people.
0: I think that's helpful, you know, even to think through is a lot of people will – will ask, I'm sure you get this a lot, when they're, they're searching for some sort of affirmation of what their vocation is. And what they want is an answer for what is the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And there's not really an answer to that. I mean, you're not going to get that on a, on a sheet, you know, lowered down from heaven. Right. That may change a lot throughout your life. And I think it's helpful to, to think that way.
1: Yeah, so I'll just say I have, I'm have i the father of uh, three daughters. They're all very capable, um, very talented. You know, one of them is probably going to be involved in architectural design her whole life, whether it's part-time or full-time. Uh, that's what she always wanted to do since she was about nine, and she didn't understand what it meant, but she's just digging into it more and more. And I've got one child who... Uh, is definitely not going to keep doing what she's doing right now. It's not bad work, but she just doesn't find it satisfying. And is, you know, gaining skills and, um, you know, she's younger. And we'll find out what she does. And then I've got a third child that's probably kind of like me, um, you know, teaching and helping and organizing. She's got administrative gifts and teaching gifts. And so the way that exactly plays out is going to vary. You know, sometimes it'll be more administrative, sometimes it'll be more teaching, and I'm pretty confident she'll she'll move around. Uh, she has a couple kids she has to care for, so she's part-time, but um, I'm sure it'll move over and over throughout her life. So this is the way it is. Um, some people know exactly what they want to do, and they need to just keep getting better at it and gaining slight new skills, but they're going to go deeper and deeper in the the same channel.
0: Um, you know, so this is a, a podcast about Christians and productivity, and so I like to ask my guests about um, their own practices in this regard. Uh, you you have a leadership position. You mentioned you're doing a lot of traveling. Um, you're balancing teaching, serving in your church, uh, writing, obviously, and and family. How? What are some of the ways you balance all that? Are there are there tools you use?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll just make this slightly blunt and make it sound scarier than it is. So I, I basically teach a full load at the seminary, and I'm a vice president. And as a vice president, I speak many times a year and maybe 15 trips a year, um, that, you know, two, three, four days, sometimes 10 days uh, if it's overseas. Um and I probably write a book about one every eight, 18 months or thereabouts, and I have a Center for Faith and Work, and I'm a theologian of residence at my local church, and through speaking I also um, connect donors to good Christian causes, including Covenant Seminary. Uh, so that that's what well, it sounds like a lot of work, how do you do all that? And Is what people ask me a lot. And the answer is by multitasking. So I'm a huge believer in multitasking. So if I'm going to teach an elective class, let's say I'm going to teach a class on Romans, that's also going to be what I teach at my local church when I'm uh, teaching Sunday school, which I do, or adult education. And I might also be writing a book on that. Which is actually what I'm doing this year. I'm writing on Romans, teaching class on Romans, teaching Romans in my local church. If I do a conference uh, I'll say nine out of ten, it's either going to be something I've already worked on or something I plan to work on and so the the main labor of the conference is just logistics um, and asking, okay, how do i how many talks do you want me to give and how long are they and who am I having breakfast with? Um, so you know there are a variety of ways in which you make you make things count two or three times. I, I do raise money, but I don't raise money by I raise money by just talking about what the seminary does, and I believe in the work of seminaries, and I believe in Christian education, I believe in Covenant Seminary. So when I go speak somewhere, you know people take you out to lunch or or breakfast or supper, and and uh, you know there are a lot of people in this world who uh, are trying to figure out how to give their money away effectively, and so I raise money by by eating lunch with people, which I have to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't ask people to give money. I, I mean you just act, you know, be friendly, and uh, once in a while, people tell you that they have to give money away because they want to be generous with the funds God's given them, and and they've. Uh, maybe they've made more money lately, or maybe they gave to an institution they don't trust anymore, uh, which does happen at mm-hmm. times. So uh, the key is is to uh, multitask and to put your labor to multiple uses. Um, for me personally, uh, I find it. I'm I'm with a friend of mine, Bob Yarborough, who's one of the better known profs at Covenant Seminary, and we're we're the same age, and you know we're we're we have passed the Threshold of sixty years, and we, you know, we keep each other honest, uh, making sure we exercise at least five days a week. Uh, That that can be going to the gym, it can be running. For me, it's uh, tennis, competitive tennis, still, and uh, you know that keeps the body strong and the mind is much much sharper when when you're exercising. I go for walks with my wife just about every day. Once in a while, the weather makes that impossible, but Just about every day, so that we're we're together, and it keeps your mind sharp. So I'm I'm uh you know I'm one of those folks that believe I know it's an arbitrary number, but the ten thousand steps I think is a good minimum for keeping your body and your soul sharper. Um, so that's a discipline. And the truth is, I do have a wife who uh, is kind of traditional, and uh if if not for her, uh, she's a she's a piano teacher and a and was a school teacher for a number of years, but right now she watches grandchildren and uh, teaches piano lessons and kind of takes care of me and her household a lot, which uh, some people will think is great, some people will think is not great. Um, she certainly finds it very meaningful, and so you know she helps me be productive as well.
0: and are you uh, are you a routine guy? Like do you have a typical morning routine?
1: Uh, i'm a I'm a list guy uh what do I need to get done today and uh that might you know if if it's uh late at night i I press on uh you know routinely I'll, if I'm working hard and effectively at something I'll keep going till midnight mm-hmm. if uh if the mind is is sharp and, and things are coming together uh, which then means uh you know i might I might go to the gym at three in the afternoon because I'm trying to write a book and it's just not coming. Uh, so get, get out and do something.
0: Right.
1: And then when you get back, maybe your mind's clearer. So I do have routines to be sure, but I'm more, uh, what do we need to get done today? And how can I get it done?
0: Do you use any kind of tools to track like what's coming up? Uh, Is just pen and paper or do you, do you have any systems you use to, to, um, yeah. balance all the tasks?
1: Uh, well, I, I do have sticky notes on my desk <laughs> telling me what to do each day. And I don't always have the priorities written out for the day, but I usually do. I try to not tackle too many things in a day. I do, I do try to block things off. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I'm writing, let's say I'm writing on Romans right now, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to write five hours a day as long as I possibly can. And then when I can't anymore, then I start working on classes and grading and, and conferences and just, you know, give it up. I I don't try to do seven different things every day. That doesn't work for me. Uh, I try to keep it to two or three or at the most four tasks a day.
0: That's helpful. And you mentioned you try to do a book every 18 months or so, and I know Uh, you're doing other writing as well.
1: Yeah, Um, I would say um, it's not so much that I try to do a book every 18 months. It's just it's been turning out that way lately. hmm. Uh, It can be, two. you know, it can be three years. Uh, you know, yeah. um, you may get two books come out in one year, and then nothing comes out for, for three and a half years or four years, uh, just the way the publication schedules fall out. But I do write. Other, I write for a couple. Uh, I write for Gospel Coalition a little. I write for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And those are almost always taken from something I'm thinking about for a book or a talk, a sermon, a class lecture. Once in a while, they're the result of... Uh, you know, a series of conversations that I just feel like I have to write up. But if it becomes a blog, it's almost always part of some other task somehow.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It's the part of the multitasking you're talking about. Right. Um, do you, is it the kind? you know, some people who, uh, write, they'll, maybe I already know the answer to this, but they'll they'll sit down and kind of everything goes on hold and it's book project time. Our, are you working kind of are these like chip away projects you're just working? On? I'm sure the last you know little bit, it's a sprint to get it all done and edited. But what's yes. that look like? Does it interrupt everything?
1: Uh, yeah, so i'm'm I'm to some extent a binge worker, um, especially when I'm, when uh, there's a little bit of time. So for example, after this uh, in an academic school year, you know, the last day of class is January, sorry, is um, December eighth, let's say, and the first class. For the spring term might be or the winter term might be january 24th well that's uh that's a solid six weeks six and a half weeks and of course there's christmas in there and you take some time off but that's five weeks in which you can work pretty hard on a book project and what you try to do is is uh clear schedule for that as much as you possibly can but then you know Toward the end of that time, you got to make sure everything is lined up for your for your classes, and so you put it on hold. I do think that if you want to write a book, it's beneficial to not put it down entirely for long periods of time. Um, you might have to put it down for two weeks, but you you know you want to keep reading at least. And say, Book of Romans, you know, keep just reading the text, think about it, jot a few thoughts, even if you're not going to write a chapter. Prepare yourself for the next period of time when you have some uh, space. To write. It also helps if you're writing books. It helps to write short books. People, um, I like to keep my books under 250 pages if I possibly can. I find that people read books that are 200 pages more than they read books that are a thousand pages, and it's uh, it's also easier to finish them.
0: <laughs> if you're going to do all that work, you want someone to
1: read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, if, if you have a lot more to say, well, write another book. So this this book on work is, you know, it's about 195, well, it's 200 pages, basically. And, uh, you know, most of the time, if you're going to write 350 pages, and I've written a couple longer books, to be sure, but um, most of the time, if you're writing 400 pages, it could have been
0: shorter. I think it's it's interesting in the, the world I'm in with the productivity stuff. You know, a lot of what people want to know about is uh, tips and tricks and software and, um, maybe shortcuts to how to get more done but i think what i I found uh the more that i've spent time in this world is that the biggest difference maker seems to just be your mindset um you basically what's driving you and motivating you and so what you you're continually, like you said you you grab a project and you just you work and work and work on it what is it that's driving you to do that what's behind that are you thinking about um you know, your your stewardship before God, you think about the judgment seat of Christ, like what is it that makes you just want to keep going and keep producing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Let me just back up and say, I agree with you, Um, but I will say that um, adequate sleep and adequate exercise, I think are foundational for productivity for the great majority of all people. If if you're exhausted, it's hard to do really good work, Uh, deep work anyway. and if, you are, uh, if you're trying to work with your mind, which I'm guessing most of your people are, are um, you know, intellectual workers, I, I thoroughly believe that exercise helps with that. As, uh, I was talking to a trial lawyer the other day, and he said, you know, some days uh, I'm just so exhausted after lunch, and so I just drop down and do a bunch of push-ups. And I mm-hmm. find uh, my mind cleared after I do a lot of push-ups. And I, you know that makes a lot of sense to me so sleep and exercise are are conditions you do have to care about your uh, about what your project is and I would say for my writing it's I'm always writing about something I think needs to be said and I'm not trying to say that I'm radically innovative very few people are but I'm trying to, you know, I think I have a different angle on things. I, I think there's something that I have to say that isn't said much or isn't said well or hasn't been said for a long time and so on. So, uh, obviously, when I prepare to preach or teach, it's a little different because you don't have to be innovative in a sermon. You have to connect with people. And for that, you know, I'm always looking for good illustrations that help people in good applications to see how the scriptures uh, connect to their daily life. I do think it's also important to make sure we're not driven for the wrong reasons. Uh, At the beginning of my book, I sort of confess that there has been uh, in my life a uh, at least a temptation that I had to face and label uh, working hard for the wrong reasons, which is that I had a my father uh, died 13 years ago. But he he was there's no other way to say it than that he was a harsh man, and. you know, he told me I was useless, worthless, and always would be. Many, many times, hmm. and uh, you know, I was bent on proving him wrong. And you know, at a certain point, I had to realize, you know, there's no amount of work I can do that's going to satisfy him. Uh, he's he's not even paying attention when he's alive. And then, of course, when he died, it's over. But a lot of people are trying to prove a mother, a father you know, a teacher, a coach, a boss, wrong. And uh, you just have to get away from that. Uh, Or maybe, you know, maybe you have a brother who achieved more than you did or a sister achieved more than you did or seems Mm -hmm. to achieve more than you did or have. And you want to catch up or maybe a classmate of yours in college and, you know, you think you're smarter, more talented, but they've had more success. And uh, you you just have to label those things. Mm -hmm. And put them aside. Uh, By by put them aside, I don't mean pretend that didn't happen. But you have to work through the fact that uh, you know most everybody hears harsh criticism at some point in their life, and you can't let that dominate you. And you know, almost everybody can look around and say there's somebody whose success baffles them, and you know, don't be covetous and envious. Praise God for the success they have, and go about your life. So we do have to put away the the destructive motivations, recognize them, and, and deal with them. Uh, but you know, in the end, you know, you you are as a Christian, we're trying to please the Lord, and you're asking the question, "What has God enabled me to do?" And am I faithful in that? Uh, so, as a as a preacher, um, I'll, the, the, I'll just tell a, a short anecdote. The, one of the first time I, I started teaching in public when I was about twenty. And uh, one particular time, one of the maybe the second or third time I spoke in public, and it was a college group. And uh, the leader of the college group just decided that I should address the group. He was a very fine speaker, had a, a great reputation as a speaker himself as he matured, but he wanted me to teach one week. And I was teaching by a, by a lake around sunset with about 40 or 50 college students there. And, uh, I had a Bible and a little three by five card, and I started to speak, and and I spoke for about twenty minutes. And a friend of mine uh, just came up to me afterwards and said, uh, "I didn't know you could do that." And I said to her, "Yeah, I didn't know I could do it either." <laughs> and you know, I just I could talk uh, without. Hemming and hawing without losing people's attention, make it all work, and it's just you know it's, there's a sense of, of givenness, and uh, you know I can keep people's attention, and uh, so I have to I have to steward that. It's a gift. Um, it's 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 been there, uh, you know, it was always there. So everybody has some gifts uh, that are that are there, and you have to ask what they are and use them. Because God gave them to you for the common good, as Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 say, to build up the body of Christ. And, uh, you know, not be grandiose to make our corner of the world a better place.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Doriani, thanks so much for being on with us today. I know that I've benefited from your insights, and and I I know that the listeners will as well. Um, The book is Work. It's purpose, dignity, and transformation. And the author, again, is Daniel M. Doriani, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but lastly, Dr. Doriani, if people wanna see more from you, what's the best way for them to uh, follow along?
1: Oh, follow along, wow, I don't know what the question is. I mean, you can always, uh, you can find my books on, uh, well, I'm the only Dan Doriani, and I. by the way, thanks. Daniel is you know my formal name, but everybody calls me Dan. Uh, I'm the only Dan Doriani in the world, so uh, oh. you know, if you want to find my sermons, just Dan Doriani. There's a bunch of sermons, many sermons up in various services. Amazon has my books. Various other you know bookstores have my books. Uh, and I write, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to some degree for uh, both uh, Gospel Coalition and this Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Um, I do have a. a an Organization called uh, Faith and Work St. Louis that helps leaders figure out how to uh, take their leadership gifts and positions and put them into use wherever they are. That's it's a low key site right now, it's going to get stronger in a few weeks. So, uh, since I'm the only Dan Doriani in the world, it's easy to find me.
0: <laughs> Just Google Dan Doriani. Uh, that, that actually works. <laughs> Well, appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this has been been a lot of fun, and, and I have learned a lot just from our conversation here.
1: Uh, my pleasure, Reagan. Thanks for your work doing this podcast. I've listened to a your podcasts, and uh, it's great. Thanks for your work. And thank you. Blessings to you. And to you.